he decided to open a bank account for the China Inland Missions. And when he went to the bank in Brighton in England, he was asked there to list all of his assets. What did you own? What are your possessions? He was asked. And he wrote down 10 pounds and the promises of God. Hudson Taylor was a man who believed in the promises of God and spent many years in China depending only upon God's promises. The unit that we read together earlier is one which brings to the fore the greatness of God's promise to his people. But before we take a closer look at the text, that is Hebrews chapter 6, 13 to 20, we need to simply briefly orientate the text in the larger context of chapter 6. In fact, the unit runs from chapter 11, or from, rather, rather from chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 20. And in the earlier section, that is chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 8, the writer enters into a digression because the main theme in chapter 5 was on the Melchizedek and high priesthood of Jesus, that Jesus Christ is a high priest who comes from the line of Melchizedek. But in verse 11 of chapter 5, he turns away from the subject of Christ's high priesthood to deal with what he saw as an imminent threat in the community. That is, the believers were no longer pressing on in maturity in the faith. And so what you find then in chapter 5, 11 to chapter 6, verse 8, is a stern warning that if they refused to continue in the faith and to mature in the faith, they would find that they would apostatize, that they would turn away irretrievably, finally, from the faith and be lost. Not that they would lose their salvation, but that they would also prove that they were never saved in the first place. But in chapter 6, verse 9, the tone changes from warning to encouragement, where the writer tells them that he is convinced of better things concerning them, things pertaining to their salvation. In other words, even though they are in a precarious spiritual position, he nevertheless believes that they're genuine Christians. So he says, I'm persuaded of better things concerning you, things pertaining to salvation. And on the basis of that, the fact that they are Christians, he exhorts them to be diligent, to come to the full assurance of hope. He calls them to persevere in faith and patience. What is he saying to them? He's saying, I want you to live a vibrant Christian life, a life of faith, a life of hope, and a life of patience. He's simply telling them, I want you to live this Christian life in hope and in patience, looking on to God. In verses 13 to 20, what we have is a justification. He's going to provide the basis upon which they may live their lives in vibrant hope and live their lives in patience and perseverance. How? On what basis can they live their Christian life in hope and persevere in the faith? 
He's going to tell them in verses 13 to 20 that they may do so on the basis of God's promise. On the basis of the promise of God. And I want to look then at this section and look at some of the features of God's promise that he displays before them. The first thing that he does is that he underscore, underscores the immutability of God's promise, the unchanging nature of God's promise. And that's what you find starting in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And after he, that is Abraham, had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. He's saying to these believers, you may persevere in hope and in confidence because of God's promise to you. And he says, let me show you an example of God's promise. And he brings before them the example of Abraham. He's going to repeat that in chapter 7. He's going to repeat the example of Abraham in chapter 11. But here he says, let me show you one to whom God's faithfulness was immutable. God's promise was unchanging and certain. He says that God made a promise to Abraham. Now we know that in Genesis chapter 6, when God called Abraham from Ur or the Chaldeans, that God promised him a number of things. God promised him a descendant, a people would come from his loins. He would be the father of a nation. God promised that he would give him a land, the land of Canaan. And yet, Abraham did not, in fact, own land in Canaan because he recognized that God promised him a greater land that is an eternal land, the land of the heavenly and spiritual Canaan. God promised him a land. God also promised that he would be a blessing, that he would be a blessing to the whole world. But central to the promise of God is the promise of a descendant, of a people. And the writer says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply you. You see, what the writer states is that God not only made a promise to Abraham, God also took an oath that he was going to bless him, and particularly give him a descendant. God said, surely I will bless you. That's the oath. So not only am I going to bless you, but surely. And God, he says took an oath to bless Abraham and swore by himself upon his own nature and character because he could swear by no one else. There was none greater than God. There is none who is above God. So God cannot swear by anyone else, but he swears on his own nature. Surely I will bless you. He does not say, by some other being or by some other God, I'll bless you. But surely, he takes an oath upon his character. He invokes his own person when he swears to Abraham. Now, the quotation that you have in verse 14, 
is taken from Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 to 17. This is a story, of course, of the passage, of course, deals with the fact that God had given to Abraham and Sarah a son, a legitimate son in Isaac. You know the, the text says that after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So God swore to him. God promised him. God swore to him, I'm going to bless you. And after he had patiently waited, the text reminds us that he inherited, that he received the promise. When we know the story of Abraham, that there is a little lapse in his faith, because in Genesis chapter 16, we have the failure of faith, where Abraham and Sarah had waited for a number of years and did not have any children, and Sarah gave to Abraham her maid, Hagar, and from her, a son was produced, Ishmael, but he was not a legitimate son. He was not the son that God had intended. So the Bible says that he waited patiently. It doesn't mean he was absolutely patient. It was a failure. But generally speaking, Abraham waited. And in fact, he waited 25 years. God made a promise to him in Genesis chapter 12 when he was 75 years old. And it took 25 years when he turned 100 and his wife became 90 years of old before the promise was given, before the promise was fulfilled. But here in Genesis 22, God seemed to imperil the promise that he made to Abraham because God said, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and take him to Mount Moriah and offer him there to me as a sacrifice. This seemed to be a complete reversal of everything that Abraham expected because now God was calling upon him to present his only son as a sacrifice. And Abraham obeyed God. And he presented Isaac to the Lord and before he slew him, before he sacrificed him, God called out to him and stopped him from harming the boy. God received his offering, his willingness to offer his son as proof of his faithfulness. And why was Abraham willing to offer up this, his only son, his only legitimate son? It is because we are told by the writer of Hebrews that he had received, he believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. Why? Because he had received him from the dead figuratively, from the deadness of Sarah's womb, he had received him. Abraham had never seen a resurrection, but he reasoned that if God were to bring life out of the deadness of his wife's womb, God was able to bring deadness, bring life out of the deadness of this man's body if he slew him. He believed that God was able to raise him again from the dead. And when the Lord saw his willingness to offer his son, it is then that the Lord repeats the promise to him and says to him, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. You see, God... The Bible says that he received the promise. God promised him a son and he received the, the promise in the birth of Isaac, in the rescue and restoration of Isaac. He received the promise in the patriarchs that were born to him, the, uh, the 12 children who were born to his descendants, the 12 
children, and they became later on Israel, the children of Jacob. God gave him the promise. Now, in a sense, of course, the promise that God would give him a descendant was only partially fulfilled in the ten tribes, uh, 12 tribes of Israel and the children of Jacob. God intends and, in fact, has given this promise to Abraham of a descendant its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, where the Bible teaches us that all of us are children of Abraham by faith. But the Bible makes it clear that God had promised him a descendant, and God fulfilled it after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So the argument that the writer is making is that God is trustworthy because his promises are immutable. We see the unchanging nature of God's promise. God made a promise to Abraham. God swore, took an oath that he would fulfill his promise. And in fact, Abraham, having waited, received the fulfillment or partial fulfillment of that promise. The writer in verse 15, that is Hebrews 6 verse 15, goes on to talk generally about oaths and taking oaths. In verse 16 he says, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. He's speaking about how oaths work generally. That when people take oaths, they do so as confirmation, as a strong confirmation. There's a very close parallel between promises and oath. The difference between the oath is from the, from the promise is that the oath is a more intensive form of speech and of confirmation. And he's saying that generally when men swear, they swear by, pe- by that which is greater than themselves, and the oath that they take generally settle disputes. And then he goes on to tell us then why God swore an oath to Abraham. In verse 17, thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, the unchangeableness of his purpose, confirmed it by an oath. And so what is he saying? He's saying that God swore an oath, not because God's word is not trustworthy. Whatever God says is true because God is truth by nature. But in order to make it abundantly clear, in order to re-emphasize to Abraham that his promise is unchanging, God swore an oath. God took an oath upon his own character that he would fulfill his promise. And so verse 17 explains the oath. It is to demonstrate the certainty of God's promise, the unchangeableness of God's promise, that in fact he will bless his people. And verse 18 goes on, to talk about this immutability of God's promise. So the first thing the writer does is that he establishes the immutability of God's promise. And he uses Abraham as one example of a man to whom God made a promise and God kept that promise. God's promise is unchanging because his purposes here are unchanging. And so Thus determining to show in verse 17 more abundantly to the heir of promise the immutability of his counsel. God is unchanging in his will. He confirmed it by an oath. But the passage not only brings to the fore the immutability of God's promises, it also brings to the fore the reliability of God's promise. And that is what verse 18 is all about. 
that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us. This is quite a mouthful. Let's try to break this down. What he's doing is that he's moving away from merely arguing that God's promise is immutable to argue, secondly, that God's promise is reliable. And I understand that there's a shade of meaning there. There is a, a closeness between these two, these two concepts of immutability and reliability. But I want to nuance it a little bit more. He's arguing here in verse 18 that the, that the promise of God is reliable. So he's dealing with the reliability of God's promise. And in fact, verse 18 is to be seen as a purpose statement. He's explaining why God gave the promise. And he says, that, that's where you find the purpose statement, the inner clause. That by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. What does it mean here, the, by two immutable things? What are the two immutable things? The two immutable things are, on one hand, the promise of God, and secondly, the oath of God that confirmed the promise. So when he says, God has revealed his will, the, the immutability of his will, that by two immutable things, that is by his promise and by his oath, they may have strong consolation those who are fled to lay hold of the hope set before them. What he's saying in brief then is that the reason that they had received God's promise and God's oath is that they might hope, that they might be encouraged to flee to hope which he says is set before them. And here he pivots to deal with the importance and the significance of having hope in God. And the reason that he, he pivots to deal with the significance of hope, it is precisely in this area that the, the people to whom he wrote were lacking. They had lost hope, genuine hope in God. They had been rocked and shaken by persecution. They had been seduced by the beauty and the charm of Judaism. And they had dispensed with trusting and reliance upon God. And so God, he says, has given them two immutable things. His promise and his oath so that they might come to this solid foundation of hope. The writer describes hope in several ways in this passage. But hope simply refers to a firm expectation of good. Certainty lies at the heart of hope. And the verse here depicts hope as significant. First of all, it is an indispensable element. He says that by these two immutable things, the promise of God and the oath of God, they might be encouraged to lay hold of hope, to grasp it, to seize it. There is, there is intentionality behind the verb. He wants them to lay hold on, to grab hold on, to seize hope. A hope, he says, that is set before them. And the, the understanding there is that hope is connected to the life to come. It is a hope that is before them. The scriptures 
and particularly the writer of Hebrews, has much to say about hope as an indispensable element. He speaks of a better hope in chapter 7, verse 19. It is a better hope that is based upon better promises and based upon a better covenant and based upon a better sacrifice. And that is why he could tell them that they are to lay hold or hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering or that we should show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope because hope is indispensable for the Christian life. No Christian can live without hope. In fact, when the New Testament uses its concept elpis or hope, elpidos, when it refers to hope, it is referring to that which is synonymous with trust. There is not a difference between hoping in God and trusting in God. It's an indispensable element. It is a part of the Christian character. And so he wants them to lay hold of the hope that is set before them. Not only does he describe hope as an indispensable element, he goes on to describe hope as a stabilizing power. In fact, he uses this tremendous imagery of hope. In verse 19, he wants them to lay hold of hope. God has given his promise. God has given his oath so that they might grasp hope. And then he says, let me tell you about this hope, the hope I want you to grasp. He says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. He's comparing hope to an anchor. Now, all of us know what an anchor does. An anchor is a nautical imagery. It's used for mooring, for keeping a ship stable. And so when the anchor is dropped overboard and it descends in the darkness of the ocean to the bottom of the ocean, the anchor, because of how it's constructed, grips the bottom of the ocean floor. And when it grips the ocean floor, it therefore keeps the ship stable from being tossed about or blown off course by the winds. And notice what he says in verse 19. He says, this hope, the promise of God should lead you to hope. He says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. You see, hope is like an anchor. It is that which stabilizes the heart. It is that which stabilizes the believer in the midst of oppression and hardship. It is hope, not merely a subjective feeling, but what they hope for. And the one in whom they hope, this hope is that which moors the soul. This hope is that which keeps the soul stable and does not allow it to turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about the reliability of hope because it is an anchor for the soul. It keeps the believer stable in his faith and in his relationship with God. But he goes on further. Not only does he see hope as an indispensable element and as a stabilizing power, he considers hope to be an objective reality. For, he says, this hope which is sure and steadfast and which enters the presence behind the veil. Marvelous. Marvelous. He says the hope of the believer is that which has gone behind the veil. What is he referring to? Well, we know that in the tabernacle there were two main sessions, uh, sections. There was the holy place 
where the priests would go and they would do their normal work. And then there was the most holy place. There was a curtain in the middle that separated the most holy place from the holy place. And behind that curtain in the most holy place was where we had the Ark of the Covenant and where God's presence was revealed. What is he saying? He's saying this hope which stabilizes the heart is a hope which goes behind the veil. It means it goes directly into the presence of God. That true hope and trust in God leads us into his presence. You see, the believer's hope is hope in God. It is a hope that is firmly established. It is established in God. But then he goes on in verse 20 and says, Where? That is, he's talking about behind the veil where hope has gone. Where the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In short, he's saying that our hope is firmly anchored in the very presence of God in heaven. And by the way, Jesus Christ has gone behind the veil, that is, he has gone into the presence of God in heaven, and he has gone there as our forerunner, meaning that we are intended to follow after him. And the one who has gone into heaven has gone there for us. You see, there is emphasis on the term here, on the expression, where the forerunner has entered for us on our account, on our behalf. And the one who has entered into heaven, into the presence of God, where, where our hope is anchored, this one is our forerunner, the one who blazes the trail for us, the one who invites us on. He is Jesus. And more than that, he is our high priest who has gone into heaven. Well, what is he saying? What the writer is saying is that we may hope in God because we have a solid basis for hope. Because God is dependable. We may trust upon God because God is dependable in his character. He has given us a promise and he has sworn. And this God cannot lie. So that the reason our hope is steadfast and sure, it is because it is based upon God's character whose words will not fail, who does not lie, whose plans and purposes do not change. But the second basis for our hope is in Jesus. You see, hope is essentially hope in Christ. And Christ is our eternal high priest from the order of Melchizedek who has gone into heaven for us. You see, the hope that is firm and cannot be shaken is a hope that is in Jesus. True True spiritual hope is not just a feeling, it's a person. It is Christ. He says our hope is where Christ has gone. For us as our forerunner, who is our great and eternal high priest. So we notice then two major ideas regarding the promises of God. First of all, the immutability of God's promise is unchanging. The dependability of God's promise, it is the basis of hope because of God's character and because of Jesus Christ, our high priest who's in heaven. But there are two other things that we must see, and we'll put them together. First, thirdly, we must see not only the immutability of God's promise and the dependability of God's promise based upon his word and based on Christ who's in heaven for us, 
but the specificity of his promise and also the exclusivity of God's promise. Let me try to explain what I mean by that. You see, the text brings to us two questions that must be answered before we try to come to a conclusion. Nowhere in the text are we given a specific definition of the content of God's promise. The text doesn't tell us what promise these believers must hold. Nor does it tell us to whom the promise was made. We know the promise was made to Abraham, but he's not the only one to whom God has made a promise. Well, in regarding to the specificity of God's promise, we need to recognize that the promise that they are to have as an anchor of the soul and to base their hope on is essentially the promise of eternal salvation. What God has promised these to whom the letter was addressed in the original context is the promise of eternal salvation. And you find this in several ways, put in sometimes different words, but essentially the same idea. For instance, in Hebrews 1.14, where the writer speaks about angels, he says, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? The promise of God that these people are to rest upon is the promise of salvation. God has given angels as ministering spirits to those who will inherit salvation. In chapter 9, verse 15, he describes what God promises as an eternal inheritance. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death by the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise, the promise of the eternal inheritance. What is eternal inheritance? It is salvation. In chapter 9, verse 5, in the passage preceding this, he reminds them that Jesus Christ has been perfected. doesn't mean he was made sinless because he never sinned, He was always sinless, but it means qualified. And so having been perfected or qualified, through his obedience that is, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see, Christ, he would argue, came into the world. The one who is light of light, of the same nature of God the Father. The one who is the brightness, the effulgence of the Father. The one who reveals the nature of God. In chapter 1 of this book, this one became man. He took a human nature, came like his brothers, that he might defeat the devil, that he might become a compassionate high priest unto God, that he might offer a sacrifice for them. And he, by his sacrifice, achieved and accomplished eternal salvation. The promise that these believers are to hold onto is the promise of eternal salvation. But to whom has it been made? Well, I have already indicated that, if you were following. The promise that God has made of eternal salvation is given to these people, to believers. And that is why in chapter 6, verse 17, he says this, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the ears of promise, The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before him. The point I'm trying to impress on you is 
that the writer is not merely telling them God made a promise to Abraham and therefore you can trust him, but rather God has made a promise to you. You know that because in verse 17 he says, God has made a promise to the heir, the heirs of salvation. Now this does not now refer to Abraham or his descendants, but to all God's people. You will find in verse 18 that he, is, he refers to us or he uses we. He says that we might have strong consolation. And then he says, those who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before, before us. In other words, those who are heirs of God's promise are the same ones who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before them. You see, the promise that God has given of eternal salvation is given to those whom he has promised to give salvation. These are his elect. These are his people. But they're also further qualified as those in time who have fled to him for refuge. These are those who are described as spiritual refugees who have abandoned the world and abandoned sin and fled to the Lord. God has given to them the heirs of salvation. He has given to them this promise that he will save them. And so what do we have if we may summarize the passage? Here you have believers who are wavering. He says, I want you to go on in full assurance of faith. Why? Because you have God's promise. It's God's promise of eternal salvation. And God's promise is characterized by immutability. It is characterized by dependability. It is good enough and strong enough for you to rest your faith upon and your hope upon. And it is characterized by exclusivity. It's given to you. It is given to you. Let us be clear, friends, that Christian hope is a sure hope. The hope of man is a vain thing. A psychologist years ago did a study where he called people in and interviewed them about their hope. And he concluded that some 94% of them did not have hope. What they had was a mere wish that things would turn around, that circumstances would work in their favor. But they did not have that assured hope. That confidence, that assurance of salvation that God will do them good. Believers, however, have a sure hope. It is an anchor, a sure and steadfast anchor. Why is the Christian hope a sure hope? It is because it is based upon God's dependability, upon God's character. You know, we, 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 we can't do business today unless we sign lots of paper. You want to buy a house or apartment or a car, you're going to spend some time signing papers. And when you've signed, you still have to also initial. They, they have little clauses there that you've got to put your initial. You are so signed up. I mean, you have no wiggle room. Why, why, why do we have to go through all of the pain of signing documents over and over and over and putting our initials? It's because our word, they've figured out by now that our word isn't good. You can't trust our word. Because left to ourselves, we will change our minds. We will deny that we made promises. And when the promises become a little bit too hard and exacting on us, we wiggle out of our promises. But you see, 
God's word may be trusted. He has promised salvation to his people. And his word must be trusted because God is fundamentally trustworthy at heart. He cannot lie. He does not change his mind. He's who he is. You see, his holiness will not permit him to change his promises. His goodness will not allow him to disappoint us. And his power will not allow him to fail us. What I'm saying is that God's word is always good. And those who trust in him will never ever be disappointed. They will never fail. Because God is unchanging in his character. He's immutable in his being. But because God's word is good, you may trust him. But because you have Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven on your behalf, who has lived and died and paid for our sins, we may trust that the one who promises a salvation and the one who has gone into heaven to secure it will be there to stand on our behalf, to intercede. His blood pleads for us. He brings to heaven the entire merit of his work on earth. He brings to heaven the scars in his hand as proof and positive proof that in fact he has paid for our sins. So we know that our salvation is guaranteed because Jesus Christ is in the right place for us. He's standing in heaven on our account, interceding for us. We may trust God's word. God's character is dependable and Christ's work in heaven is always valid. You need to know that our hope is a short hope. But to have true hope, hope of heaven and hope of glory, we must flee to God. You see, the heirs of promise are those who have fled to God. You cannot have true biblical hope until you have come to realize that salvation is found in no one else and nowhere else. You must recognize that the world in which we live is a, is a world that is heading to destruction. There must be a cognizance, a realization that men in their sins always displease God. And we must endeavor to flee from the sin and the ungodliness of the world and flee to God. We must be spiritual refugees. If we have to have this biblical hope, we must find our refuge in God. And we begin by coming to him and saying, Lord, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. The man or woman who flees to God acknowledges sin. Lord, I have sinned and I'm unworthy of your mercies. But Lord, I come because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You must flee to God. You can never have true biblical hope until you have found hope in Jesus Christ. You must flee to God and say, Lord, save me, forgive me. Lord, I believe that Jesus Christ is Savior. I believe he's the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. Lord, I trust him. And only then will you be given this true living hope, hope which saves. You see, only those who have come to Christ, who have fled to God, can have true biblical hope. But if there's nothing else you take away from the text, it is that it calls us, it not only tells us about the surety of hope and directs us to flee to God, 
It tells us that we ought to live our lives by hoping in God's promises. That we ought to trust in God's promise. We are not to be, as believers, like the addressees of this epistle. People who had lost their hope, who were no longer resting in God. People who had turned away and were thinking of returning to Judaism. We aren't to follow these, but we are to continue vibrant in hope. And it means that we are to follow men like Abraham. Abraham, who we are told, God said to him, Surely I will bless you, and multiply, and I will multiply you. And he believed the bare word of God. God did not return to him and gave him a sign. He spent years. Can you imagine? This man is already 75 years old. And he gets older and older. He turns 85. And still no promise. No fulfillment of a promise. He turns 95 years old and still there is no fulfillment of the promise. The Bible says, against hope he hoped. Against hope he hoped. Because he believed the bare word of God. He believed that God has said it and it will be done. He did not know how long it would take. But he believed because God is unchanging in his nature that God will do what he said. And as the years rolled by, this man, his faith became stronger. And as he got older and saw the impotency of his body, the more he trusted because you see, God is always reliable. And that's the example you and I are to follow. We are to rest our hope on the bare word of God. But the longer it takes for God to answer, the more we should look to him. We have exceedingly great promises from God. Promises that he has given to us that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Promise that he... We ought not to become weary in well-doing, for in due time you shall reap if you do not faint. Promise like, my God is able and will supply your needs according to his riches in glory. Promises like, my heavenly Father will receive you one day to heaven. You ought to trust the bare word of God, because his promises are yea and are amen. May God grant us today that we would be like Abraham, a man who hoped against hope, that we would not give in to despair and discouragement, but that we would live our Christian life looking unto a faithful God and looking unto a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven for us and represents us in our interest before the Father for Jesus' sake. Amen. Shall we pray? Our Father, we confess that there are many discouragements that we encounter on the road to glory. And sometimes we wait for you to answer us in our need. And we may even, even doubt that your word will be fulfilled. You have promised us heaven.
You have promised us your protection and your care and your provision. You have promised us, Lord, that you will not abandon us, and we pray that you may give us the patience like Abraham to wait on you because your promises are unchanging and are dependable and are exclusively given to your people. Help us to be a people who know you by nature and trust your word. Help us that we would not give up, but Lord, that we will say, like the saints of old, Lord, I will not let you go until you bless me. Sanctify your word to our hearts. Direct our thoughts, we pray upon these things. And receive praise and glory, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.